Hi, my name is Anna, and I've been sober from Redweed, Mech, Kick, and Smash for 10 standards. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I would very much like 12 Days of Jam Cakes. This is Space the Nation, the show where we examine science fiction through the bifocal view of international relations and adaptive structure theory. (laughs) Today, we will be talking about Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, and of course, recapping Ted Lasso, because it's our show and we can do what we want. Speaking of which, coming up on the show to continue our hot sci-fi summer, next week we will be doing the classic Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey, Gonzo dragon movie, Reign of Fire. And following that, we are delighted we're going to make a slight change. We were going to do Space Sweepers, but we have decided that since Fox is rebooting Fantasy Island, and since we originally wanted to do Fantasy Island, we're going to watch the first two episodes of that and talk about that. We are always happy to take suggestions from uh, patrons and from others. We do have a long list, but, you know... We're getting some good ideas, and this is just one of many reasons why, Anna, you might want to become a patron. Yes, you might want to become a patron because you do get a more direct line to us. Mm -hmm. You also get episodes early, you get merch, and my favorite perk, the Discord. The Discord (laughs) channel where we meet and talk about all kinds of things, including Ted Lasso. There's actually a Ted Lasso channel oh, in good. the Discord. Oh, I need to enter, I need, I will, I'm going to participate in that Discord channel. There's no denying. And we also have an Adorables channel where we mm-hmm. post pictures of our pets. And we just kind of chat. It's a great community. You should join it. It is somewhat small right now, but getting bigger. And in fact, we are halfway to 250 patrons, We are more than halfway, in fact. And Dan, what are we going to do when we get to 250 patrons? When we get to 250, we will be doing a patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by the patrons. And we trust those patrons, so we look forward to that. Dan, I want to talk about why we're doing this book, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Dan, what are your reasons? Why Why did you want to do this book? My reasons were that you asked me very nicely, and so I thought it would be a good idea. Um, but as I, let me put it this way, as I read it, I was like, this is a good book to read for Hot Sci-Fi Summer. This was just a really fun book and thoroughly consistent with the vibe we are going for for Hot Sci-Fi Summer. I enjoyed it immensely. There are things we will discuss that, you know, we can critique, but it really presents an interesting future one very consistent in some ways with the last book we we read which was victories greater than death in that there's a lot of interesting gender fluidity there's a lot of interesting alien stuff going on and so a lot of interesting alien stuff is one way to put it down yes I was going to say, it's yeah. a G-rated podcast, but it's not. There's it's, a lot. <laughs> we try to keep it. We try to. We just try to keep it to in, innuendo, mostly. Yeah, so exactly. I think that's like PG-13. But Anna, why did you, you were the one who was who came up with this, this book. Yes, this why true. did you choose it? So I had read it before, and it, it as much as I remembered it, it is a delightful book. It is a lot like Victories Greater Than Death in its sort of approach to the world, mm-hmm. right? Which is that, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. This book likes to be alive. Like, this yeah. is like... Life is an experiment. Life is a journey. Going to relish it. The right? book made me miss travel. The friends travel. we made along the way, Dan. Yes. That no. is the attitude of this book. The way I would put it is the book, and this is true, I think, more than in the case of Victor's Greater Than Death. This Because Victor's Greater Than Death, to be fair, is about a war. But this book yeah. made me miss traveling. That's what I would say. And that, like, you know, one of the delights about this book is it's a journey, as you say. It takes you along different ports, different interesting alien worlds. Um, There is a sort of Star Trek episodic vibe to it in, like, let's go to this planet and see what happens. Let's go to that planet and so forth. But they were all really interesting. And so, yeah, I, I, I wanted to, like, get my passport and go somewhere. 
Yeah, I, I will say that there were a couple places in the book where I kind of teared up, mm-hmm. but it was because a lot of this book is about family. Yes. And about uh, and about constructed, choice. Right, it's about yes. constructed family, not uh, not your biological family. And it's mostly pretty great <laughs> constructed family stuff. Yes. And it doesn't dwell on what might have gone wrong in your own family. Mm-hmm. It really just focuses on the joys that you can find when you find that family of choice. So... It was. It, I just, you know, all the feels. That's correct. And so, Anna, why don't we get to the story behind the story? What? How did this? It sounds like this book had an unorthodox origin story. It it did. It was funded on Kickstarter, which oh. I am not sure if I know of another book that wound up going with a major publisher mm-hmm. that was also funded on Kickstarter. I would also say I think that's probably why it feels so episodic, mm-hmm. as she probably wrote it in fits and starts. Hmm. She was about two-thirds of the way through the book uh, when her freelance work dried up. I can identify. <laughs> and she decided she needed enough money to get through two months of working on it in the mornings. Dan, would you like to guess how much money she aimed to raise? For two months' worth of mornings, um, I would assume she would be aiming at, I don't know, 50K? $3,000, Dan. That's all she wanted? Oh, my God. That's all she wanted. Oh, we could have got in on the ground floor. Good Lord. We could have been like, yeah, we could have been like the venture capitalist to, to this book. I am sh- quite sure she has made a lot more than 50000 Oh, good now. for her. I am very <laughs> This is a very popular series. It wound up going on to win a Hugo for Best Series. And I'm sure it's, you know, been optioned and whatnot. I do want to tell you her Kickstarter pitch because it's very different than what I thought the book was about hmm. in a way. I mean, it it jibes with it, but it puts a different spin on, on what I already thought about the book. Okay. So here's her pitch on Kickstarter. Let's hear it. In the Galactic Commons, humanity is a minor player. Though they have carved a niche for themselves among their alien neighbors, this small, wandering race of merchants and modders is of little concern to the galaxy at large. To most, humans aren't much to worry about. Amidst the noise and bluster of a very crowded sky, an insignificant ship of wormhole builders, better known as tunnelers, makes its way across the stars, punching holes in space. The ship is the wayfarer, its crew is an unremarkable one. They are not heroes, nor will they ever be anyone of galactic importance. These are simple people, sailing from planet to planet in search of the means to make it through another day. But even those ordinary people have stories to tell. As we journey along with the Wayfarer's crew, the intricacies of the galactic community are laid bare. Set against a backdrop of curious cultures and alien worlds, the long way to a small, angry planet explores our species' interstellar future through the eyes of the everyman. A little different, right? It's a touch different. I mean, like, there are things... Her themes are there, definitely, but it's just a different emphasis. Right. Also, I mean, there's a few things. First, from that write-up, I would have guessed that the Wayfarer crew was all human, which is obviously not the case. And indeed, that's an important part of it. And also, I think calling them insignificant is not correct, at least given the plot of the book. Agree. (laughs) So, you know, that... But I will say, like, the one thing that is consistent is the idea that, like, humans aren't major players necessarily in the galaxy in this world, in this sort of universe that she has created. And in some ways, it is focused on what we would consider, I guess, a blue-collar ship. I was going to say, if I had read this description before I did my Mm -hmm. (laughs) write-up, I would have focused a lot more on the labor issues. Yeah. (laughs) Because this is definitely, like, this, you know, this is a book in some ways about labor and there is like a middle management class and then there is an executive class and mm-hmm. you know the power flows as you might think it would but dan enough with the story behind the story let us get to the plot let's get to the actual story 
Okay. So why don't we meet the crew of the Wayfarer? So it is the future, and a lot of the galaxy is part of the GC, or Galactic Commons, which functions seemingly a lot like the United Nations on Earth, but slightly more effective. The good news is that the GC includes humans. Bad news is that we have befouled our planet, and therefore no one really lives on Earth anymore. In the future, the coastal elites slash Elon Musks of the world went to Mars and sort of live a very chilly lifestyle there. The rest of the Earthers became exodens, meaning they literally engage in an exodus from the Earth and sort of live as a diaspora community across the rest of the GC. And in this GC universe, uh, humans are a minor species. Travel around the galaxy is done through constructed wormholes or punches. That is what the Wayfarer and its motley crew, led by Captain Ashby Santosi, do. Our novel starts with Ashby deciding to hire a clerk to help with filing and accounting and regulatory matters. He hires Rosemary Harper, a space newbie who is qualified, but dun 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 has, dun, a, se- dun, dun, dun. has a secret right. past. She boards the ship and meets its eclectic crew. These include the human engineers, Kizzy and Jenks. Kizzy talks a lot and is very enthusiastic about everything. Uh, Jenks is short. The pilot, Sissix, is an Andrisk, uh, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of these names, a reptilian-slash-bird-like creature. She likes to snuggle a lot. Corbin, who is the ship's human algiest, and the algiest sort of helps run the engines, I think. I didn't quite get the tech on I that. I believe the engines that aren't the interstellar engines run on algae. Right. The important thing is he's pretty much a tool. He's very, very sort of, it, he almost seems like he's on the altar. He's just spectrum. an ass. Like, yeah. I mean, come on. He's yeah. just an asshole. Yeah. That's simple. Okay. Uh, there is Dr. Chef, who actually has an unpronounceable name in Grum, which is the species he is, uh, but fulfills both the jobs of doctor and chef and is a, just a total mensch. Oban, who is a cyanat symbiont, the species possesses the capacity to navigate in subspace, provided that that species is infected with this particular virus. Oh, I thought you were going to say the spice at this oh, point. Oh, no. I just, okay. I, 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 I mean, I can. No, I mean, no, no. That's d- totally is this, that's totally Hey, fine. Dan, is this virus the spice? <laughs> it would seem, I have to say, like, clearly this, this book borrowed from a lot of different things. And I say borrowed in the best sense of the world. It's not like stealing, but like that, that did seem a little Dune-like. And then finally, there is Lovey or Lovelace, the ship's AI artificial intelligence, who is seriously in love in Jank with Jenks, and I would add Jenks is seriously in love with the AI. The GC has signed an alliance with the Toremi, a volatile race near the center of the galaxy. The Toremi have ample sources of Ambi, which is a fuel that permits interstellar travel. To cement this alliance, the GC is commissioning a wormhole from this planet and puts out the order for bid. Ashby takes uh, the gig because it pays super well, and even though it will take up a standard year to complete the voyage there to start the tunnel. Anna, the part of the world building that I thought was the most interesting was, well, two things. First of all, the humans being a minor species, even though they do comprise the key characters in this novel. But B, more importantly, the food. I really want to try Red Coast Bugs. <laughs> the Red Coast Bugs sound delicious. I like the idea of insects as the primary source of protein uh, in the GC. What say you? I just assumed they were kind of like lobsters. Yeah, that was what one I thought. Because yeah. one thing I, I do remember from like my childhood when I was introduced to lobsters as a food, my uncle, quite the prankster, was like, <laughs> these are bugs, Anna. You're eating bugs. And of course, they look like bugs. <laughs> so, they do, yes. <laughs> I was kind of grossed out. But then I discovered they were delicious. Mm-hmm. So who cares? Yes. That's, I assume, the way that most humans feel about Red Coast bugs. Yes. Um, I do love the whole Dr. Chef kind of arc. 
his story is really good. I love the descriptions of the food. Mm-hmm. A lot of it does sound really delicious. Yeah. I am very curious about mech. I have mm-hmm. to say, it is, which is not a food. No, mech is a drink, rather. and and we were talking right before we were starting to record. I was honestly confused what mech was when this for the first third of the novel. I kind of thought it might be coffee with like a little bit of a kick, but I think as the novel goes on, it's clear it's some sort of intoxicating beverage, like mildly intoxicating. Yeah, I was thinking of it almost when they were drinking on the ship. I was like, is this like you know the grog of sailors? <laughs> you know, like uh, I don't know. Of course, it is an intoxicant, and therefore I could not try it if it did exist. But I'm still curious. Mm -hmm. The thing about humans also in this world is not just that they're insignificant. They are humble, Dan. Yes. I found this to be one of the most difficult things to suspend the weight of disbelief about. (laughs) It's there a lot. Like, they kind of mentioned it a few times, that humans have become pacifists, generally, and humble. I mean, we can talk more about that in the IR section. I yeah, I, let me put it this way. I, I I didn't stress that when we get to the IR portion, but I will say that part felt like a stretch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, let me put it this way. I entirely buy the notion that humans would have befouled the planet. You know, unfortunately, yep. let's face it, we're halfway there. The idea that this would have somehow, like, created humility in the species, and particularly that it would create pacifism, strikes me as highly unlikely. I think the one thing that would have been interesting is if the human fleet, and it sounds like in in the backdrop of the story, it sounds like the Exodens in particular, like literally survived by a minor miracle that essentially they were picked up, you know, because space is really big, but like someone picked up their distress signal and therefore they were welcomed uh, into the GC. It would be interesting to imagine a, a scenario whereby the human species suddenly realizes, oh, damn, we thought we were everything and like... It turns out there's this tech, like all these species have technology that blows ours away. Um, That maybe would would lead to some. Make a difference. And there might have been sort of a, well, what is the word I'm thinking of where you say like, when things get narrowed down because of who chooses, oh, self-selecting, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there might be a little bit of sort of self-selecting happening here Mm -hmm. because the kinds of people who did the exodus. Yeah. Sounds like they were the more working class people. Yes, although, by the way, this... I mean, and also the more diverse people, because it's mentioned yeah. that basically all humans are the same color now. Right, except for the <laughs> Martians, who are, like, clearly... Right. By the way, white. this is the other thing that I would say I don't yeah. entirely... And also those few people who stayed on Earth yeah. were also white. Yes. yes. But I will say, this is the part that I don't buy from the uh, the book, the idea that... Because in the book, it's presented that, that basically all humans have sort of reconciled, that there was clearly a fissure <laughs> right. between the Martians and the Exodens. And I'm sorry, based on who would have gone to Mars... There is no fucking way those people would have been like in any way like modest or chastened in any. And kind this of is way. very expansy. Yes. Right. Yeah. And and I think in the world of the expanse, if this was sort of the backbone of that world right. rather than what it is, yeah. Mars would have to be defeated in a war. Yes. In order <laughs> to. Yeah, you'd have to. <laughs> there would be nice. Right. Exactly. So like that part, I, I will say that was an interesting trope in the book, and I actually kind of liked it. But yeah, I, I don't quite. The IR person in me doesn't quite buy it. I guess. So my last thing about this section, Dan, is mm-hmm. it's infrastructure ten day. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of talk about infrastructure I know. in this book, Dan. Infrastructure is really goddamn important in the galaxy, Anna. I'm glad to see that there was a clearly a GC wide infrastructure bill that got approved. Thank God there's no Senator Manchin yeah. <laughs> in the GC Senate. <laughs> 
you know, he'd no Kristen Cinema. Yeah. <laughs> hey, come on, there's going to be a bill going, you know, you don't know. Okay, as we record, there's still a lot of questions about what right. that bill is going to be. Mm-hmm. I do understand there is something of a history in, in trading infrastructure for access, though, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's something people do. That's the favor that the GC is doing. Sure. No, there's a way in which this is, I mean, this is sort of China's Belt and Road Initiative right now, in fact. The idea is that, you know, China agrees to build various port facilities and so on and so forth, but then they get to control them. And so, yeah, that's entirely the case. And the U.S. has done this previously, although generally the U.S. has been slightly less heavy handed about it because it's mostly been private corporations that have done it. Whereas oh, see, China, I thought what you were going to say is that historically, actually, there's not so much a trade as we are going to do infrastructure over your shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will say, if you do, we are going to just take Panama, what take this and then do some infrastructure on top I, of it. <laughs> I, I will say, if you take a look at the history of how the Panama Canal was built, yeah, that's an instance where, where the U.S. <laughs> sort of said, we're going to do this and we'll just create an independent country if you don't want it to do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. So I think the Toremi, Toremi, Toremi. That was what I Toremi. said. I believe the Toremi are getting off a little lightly here. Of course, they turn out to be assholes, but right. you know, there are a lot <laughs> the GC of GC didn't come in. The GC didn't just come in and take it. I guess that's I will say that, this goes back to something your your previous point, which is there are a lot of asshole species in this book. Humans are not one of them, interestingly enough. But like you yeah. know, there's the Quailon, and you know, we, which we'll get to, and like there are others as well. So like. It was interesting to see that there are other species that are just bigger assholes than humans. I want to talk more about that. Okay. We will. We shall do that later. All right. Let's get to Act 2, uh, The Wayfarer's Episodic Adventures. So, as the Wayfarer makes its way to the Toremi planet, they encounter many adventures, including the following. First, a stop at Port Coriol to get supplies, where the crew gears up and Ashby hooks up with his main squeeze, Pei, who is from a species that ordinarily frowns on interspecies mating, so they're kind of doing this on the DL. They also encounter a hostile boarding party of Akarakian privateers, in which the Wayfarer is saved by Rosemary, uh, because Rosemary actually can speak their language as well as sort of understand the culture of privateering, and therefore basically the ship manages to escape relatively unscathed. They have to deal with an inspection team of Quailons who nearly kill Corbin the Algiest because it turns out that, unbeknownst to everyone, including Corbin, I would add, he's a clone, and cloning is a big no-no within the GC. Fortunately, they are able to uh, save him through, again, Rosemary's intrepid legal discoveries. They also visit Sissix's homeworld, where Rosemary sees Sissix coupling up close. And they also go to Arun, which, beyond being an outstanding Thai restaurant in Chicago, is also <laughs> is also a planet colonized by Oban species. But the Cyanat who are on Arun are renegades who kill the virus that enables them to navigate, which has not actually a big taboo within the larger Cyanat community. And indeed, Oban refuses to do this, even though Oban is dying because the virus is taking its course. Plot-wise, we learn that, you know, in addition to Oban dying, we also learn that Rosemary is the daughter of an arms trader who sold weapons to both sides of a Toremi civil war and kept that little fact a secret. The crew seems okay about it since she was innocent. Um, <laughs> I kind of, I just I'll jump in and say, like, I felt like that was sort of a fake out. Yeah, you know? that was like, like you know. That was- I, I mean, like, I bought her hiding her identity to get where she was. Mm-hmm. And I guess I get... If you have that much shame, you often assume other people will burden you with guilt. Right. 
Like, if you have the shame, you assume people are going to endorse that shame. You assume everyone else will look at you in a shameful yeah. way. That's true. But, yeah. but uh, let me put this way. But it seemed so clear that she was a decent person. Yes. <laughs> and I have to say, that was so, it, it wasn't just like the crew was fine with it. They just sort of hand-waved it away. There was no other yeah. way to put it. Oh, one other thing that happens, which is Rosemary and Sissix begin to couple. On a, this book really was unusual for me, I think, in that the unsung hero is Rosemary, who was I just, you know... Oh, I think she sung Rosemary. She's really good at paperwork. She's good at diplomacy. She's good at interstellar law. All hail the back office staffers is all I can say. Dan, this continues a theme Mm -hmm. from Loki. Yeah, there you go. Correct? That's true. Yes. I think this is a new subgenre and we should (laughs) name it. So I have a couple of suggestions. Okay, let me hear them. (laughs) Bureau-fi. No? How about org-fi? Orgfy? Orgfy is a little quicker. You know, you want- I like that. Also, civil service punk. <laughs> I think that's my favorite. Civil service I punk. I wanted to I go like. with like civil punk. Yes. Because it's shorter. Yeah. But you kind of need the service. No, the there, service. So. I like civil service punk. I think that actually works. <laughs> yes. That's very okay, true. So well, that's what we'll call it from now on if we encounter it again. Very good. Speaking of hand wavy uh, yeah. about you know, Rosemary's backstory. Mm-hmm. I thought the clone stuff was a little hand wavy too. I mean, it it's less hand wavy with Corbin. Like he has a you know interaction with his father that's that's pretty meaningful mm-hmm. and gets to this theme of families of choice. I mean, talk about family of choice, right? Yeah, like yeah. making the choice to have a son that is a clone of you. Right. But the whole like why are clones illegal mm-hmm. and such a taboo? I mean, I sort of got it, but. It was a lot of like, this is a huge taboo in like a paragraph or two. Well, so we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But one of the interesting things about this book is like they're clearly very important species norms. And there's also tolerance of those norms by other species. And what strikes me as fascinating is the idea that the cloning thing is like, that's a galactic taboo. You can't do that. Yeah, everybody, no one likes clones. No one wants to do that. Like one of the few taboos that I did notice, and at some point it's sort of offhandedly mentioned in the book, you know, one of the few taboos, for example, on Earth that pretty much transcends all cultures is the incest taboo. And there's, there's a slight reference to that in the book as well. It's like, that makes sense. That would be a global thing. The cloning one, I'm not entirely sure I get. And I, the only way I could sort of justify it, I think, unfortunately, for Becky Chambers would be you'd almost have to literally do a Star Wars story where it would be like, the reason we don't clone people is because yeah. that leads to war and, like, you know, just cannon fodder and so on and so forth. Which Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I can kind of imagine it being an intergalactic taboo. Right. But also there's so many things that apparently aren't taboo across <laughs> cultures. Yes, exactly. That I don't know about clones. Right. It, I mean, it could you could actually, I would have bought it if she had sort of aligned uh, it with the incest taboo. Right. Like, and that like would have made sense. It's sort of yeah. considered a form of incest yeah. and therefore I, other species don't like it. I guess the way I would put it, this is how I kind of felt about the book. The backs- I mean, this is a, such a nitpick, by the way, but I don't think <laughs> in what is a book that I thoroughly enjoyed, but, I, but it did kind of bother me. Let me put it this way. I, I'm going to push a little bit. Like, I really enjoyed this book, but honestly, I do think this is a book that almost could have gone through one more editing pass and would have been mm-hmm. much better. Because these are the kind of things where I don't even think it would have been that much of a hard fix for that. Yeah. It could have been like a paragraph or so and you could have really done it. And so I was sort of... Yeah, like made it made it akin to... And if you had just said something like other species yeah. had realized that this is sort of like incest for right. XYZ reasons. It's like narcissistic incest. Yes, or something. Yeah. Yeah, you know. You know, but yeah. but you're right. And this is, I guess, the problem with doing a Kickstarter novel. Right. <laughs> like, a, Or not the problem, depending on your point of view. Yes. Like the benefit of doing a Kickstarter novel, which I had never really considered, but now... Mm-hmm. There you go. Not having an editor. Although, <laughs> although Dan, I think you and I agree that editors, the right editor is worth 
their weight in gold, I would say. As someone who's blogged for almost 20 years, I value every editor I've actually dealt with on longer form essays and so forth. They, they make my work so much better. So yes, totally agree. Yay, editors, yes. including, you know what, our editor, Karen. There you go. Karen makes this show better. Oh, man, we sound so much better <laughs> when you're listening to this. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a small snippet of what we sound like. And Karen, don't edit this. This is what we would sound like ordinarily. Um, uh, you know, Anna, um, well, you know, uh, what do you think, Anna? And also that laugh. I laugh a lot more, <laughs> believe it or not, than she puts in there. <laughs> Because I do laugh a lot. I laugh Because it's too, just yes. kind of my nervous tick. Yes. And then there are ums. There's ums oh, and ums so many and ums. ums. Yes. So she takes out the ums. Right. So so we love Karen. We love Karen. Speaking of editing, though, we probably should move along with the story. We then. should. So let's go to Act 3. The small angry planet is, like, really angry. After a standard year, the Wayfarer arrives at the Taremi world and is ready to start its tunneling. The Taremi, however, are encountering some issues. They demand unanimity of purpose within the Taremi culture, and some of the Taremi simply cannot comprehend the pluralistic ways of the GC. Just as the Wayfarer is about to start tunneling, a Taremi ship destroys the cap at the start of the tunnel. The Wayfarer is damaged, but manages to return to global common space via the wormhole they are tunneling. Without the initial cap in place, however, the tunnel disappears after they dig it. The attack fries Lovey's circuits. They try a hard reset, but it results in the AI losing her memory and going back to the factory-issue personality, which understandably crushes Jenks. Anna, I like sci-fi that takes the alien cultures seriously and chambers really does that here and what i particularly liked of all the cultures that we got exposed to was the andrisk one this is sissix's culture and in particular their attitude toward kids which is very different <laughs> very different from human culture because in some ways it's reptilian approach or what one might imagine the reptilian approach would be should they be a sapient Species, right. so the, which is to say, the basically that the children are like not really sentient beings, and in an emergency they could be totally shunted aside. Also, Andrisk sort of birth moms don't really have much to say to their actual offspring; they don't consider that their real family. So this seemed legit transgressive or French, one of them. I, don't know. <laughs> I was thinking more like industrial revolution times like when kids mm. just like dropped off like you didn't even name them till they were five you know like <laughs> which is true actually because they say like in a hatchling like you know the mortality yeah. rate is pretty high that's true yes yes and it again it's a family of choice thing mm -hmm. right yeah i will try to keep this personal story short but my cousin heather is gay and has a partner and they have two little chinese girls mm -hmm. and they're both heather and her partner very you know, understandably, they're like an ambitious women who wanted to have careers. And they decided to move in with my aunt and uncle mm -hmm. in like a big McMansion. They got a McMansion for pretty cheap yeah. crash and whatnot. And so my aunt and uncle lived in kind of a separate part of the house, but it was a truly multi-generational house. Hmm. And those girls never came home to empty an empty house. house. And I have to say, I was jealous what a way to grow up to know that someone's always going to be there for you to always like, have a pack that you're well basically yeah. yeah and also to have like sort of a variety of influences like that i don't know i find that really heartwarming so yeah. that part of the andrus culture seems really appealing to me 
the whole they're not really people till they're five is less. Right. Yeah. But I actually say, given for lack of a better putting it, the infant mortality rate, I kind of get where that, it makes sense that it would in some but, ways. Oh, you yeah. know what? But what yeah. she doesn't do is show any children dying. That's true. I mean, and I should, maybe I shouldn't say children, but it would have dramatized for sure and even made more understandable this attitude towards children mm-hmm. if there had been something to show this is why we don't get attached to them. Yes. Although that said, the other aspect is that when the culture of the Andres, like have their feather family, I think it's called. Yeah. Man, they get down. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> there is a lot of boning in the Andres feather family. I want to also say that for some reason I kept picturing the Geico gecko oh god as really? the andrisk <laughs> no but like the the Geico gecko like with feathers i don't know most of the species i felt like i could picture pretty clearly mm-hmm. but for some reason the andrisk like i couldn't quite i kept the Geico gecko just kept coming so i <laughs> i don't know also now regret putting it that exact way so i i will say but <laughs> the one, the, one of the scenes I, I really liked in the book is the one where Rosemary finally sort of approaches Sissix about the idea of the two of them hooking up. And it's told from Sissix's point of view where she like realizes that something weird is going on and she's not sure what. And then she realizes, oh, Rosemary put on a nicer outfit. She's like wearing makeup and stuff. Like, like it was clear that there was an effort and I kind of appreciated that. That was a, a, Oh, that was a very sweet scene. Yes, I agree. Yes, exactly. I agree. Oh, the other running joke about humans is that they stink. <laughs> they also can't smell very well, so they don't know that they stink. Right, relative to other species in the GC, yes. Yes. And there is a, a, a sequence in which Dr. Chef tells Sissix, don't you notice how our humans don't smell as much as other humans? <laughs> <laughs> because I've been putting this, like, whatever, antibacterial stuff in the soap. Anyway, it's cute. Yes. It's cute. I'm glad that their humans smell better than other humans. Yes. That's very sweet. That is sweet. Let's go to Act 4, The Wayfarer 2.0. So, the aftermath of the Taremi attack has personal and political repercussions. Personally, Corbin decides the crew has had enough losses for a spell and therefore injects Oban with a serum that kills the symbiont, but will allow him to live a much longer life and also allows him to continue to be a navigator. Oban, who is now a singular, decides to stay on as the navigator, which is welcomed by everyone. Lovelace decides to leave the Wayfarer because everyone realizes that it's just too much for Jenks and also the AI has the capacity to live autonomously due to some black market tech. That's what part I was going to say. When you say Lovelace leaves the Wayfarer, it's not like she like walks out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The political repercussions are pretty severe. Ashby testifies at a parliamentary inquiry and blasts the GC for not providing more security for them. The GC decides to sever the alliance with the Taremi. Anna, I get Ashby's anger, although I'm also going to point out that this was a, another part of the book that could have been fleshed out a little bit more, because I was, I thought Ashby was way too chill just before that Taremi ship exploded, and I would have been super nervous if I was in his situation. But I also disagree with the GC decision to sever the alliance. It seems like a hasty decision, although I will grant that the initial alliance also seemed like kind of a hasty decision. What do you think? Dan, there's a lot of IR in this book. I'm just going to spoil like our, the rest of our conversation. Uh, there's more than I remember. I remember starting this and I was like, huh, I wonder what kind of IR I, I don't really remember. There is a shit ton, really. Like, <laughs> yeah. if you think about it as the GC, as the UN. Right. And also, if you wanted to get really granular, there's a lot of backstory about colonialism and like yes. interspecies warfare. Mm-hmm. There's a ton that we probably could talk about. We won't talk about all of it, I'm sure. Right. But that is one of the places where in the margin I wrote, I wonder what Dan will say. 
Sometimes I just write IR question mark. <laughs> and then sometimes I'm like, Dan question mark. And so I'm actually curious. We could just move on to our next segment, Dan. Why don't we do that? Don't do you want to? Because I have a question. Go ahead. Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this book? Stars, Anna. Of course there is IR in this book. And the IR that this book most uh, brought up for me is the politics of alliances and the question of the utility of alliances. So the alliance with the Taremi seems like what some IR scholars would refer to as an asymmetric alliance. So symmetric alliances are when states sort of band together and they're providing each other security and they also have the capability to provide each other security. So, you know, states of equal strength, for example, aligning together, that would represent a symmetric alliance. An asymmetric alliance is usually when one state is getting security because they've aligned with a great power and the great power is getting something like autonomy or resources or some other sort of benefit from the smaller, weaker state. And the advantage here is that in some ways it's like a sort of political exchange. There's there's a double coincidence of wants. And therefore, generally speaking, those kinds of alliances tend to be more durable, although this book contradicts that. It also gives rise to a debate, a rollicking debate within the USIR community. (laughs) Oh boy, the panels, they get spicy. They do. They do. You laugh. They get pretty spicy about entangling alliances. So basically, there is an argument that a lot of American realists put forward that argue that alliances with border states in particular ensnare a great power in unwanted conflicts. Um, So, for example, the U.S. alliance with South Korea potentially puts it at risk of a war with North Korea, and there was already one conflict that you might recall that occurred there. And so one of the reasons that uh, realists tend to advocate, for example, the U.S. retrenchment from, let's say, Northeast Asia or even from Europe, is the argument that alliances are likely to increase the probability of the United States actually entering into a conflict because their ally winds up behaving in a wayward fashion. My colleague at Tufts, Michael Beckley, has a great paper in international security that basically argues the opposite. He's not the only one who makes this point. There's a lot of liberal internationalists who make this point that essentially alliances aren't actually ensnaring and that in fact what usually happens is that when there's an alliance between a great power and a smaller state, it actually constrains the smaller state's behavior because they will prioritize the alliance with the great power rather than trying to rile up their adversary or their enduring rival or what have you. And so in that sense, I guess the argument I would make is that if I was the GC, I would want to keep the alliance with the Taremi in the hopes that the Taremi would essentially would learn how to constrain their behavior and therefore become a contributing member of the GC. The other reason I have to say that I would have preferred the alliance to have stuck around is that it seems like the attack on the Wayfair, while obviously deplorable and in no way should be sanctioned, was done by a minority member of the Taremi. It was, done, it was a terrorist action, essentially. And so I'm not sure you should blame the entire Taremi for that. I found the Taremi backstory stuff a little confusing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because there's a couple of passages that are told from the point of view of the Toremi, and I didn't quite follow, yeah. let's say. And also, I wasn't like, entirely... I, I got that there was a split. Right. I understand some Toremi are for the alliance, some Toremi aren't, and I got that it was sort of a rogue operator mm-hmm. that fired on On the, the, the Wayfair. Wayfair, yeah. Maybe it wasn't. What I, If you're this far into this episode, you've read the book, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to spoil it by saying... Like what happens is there is a unsent email to Rosemary to say that the Turimi have really good hearing. Right. That's correct. Because a lot of the book, there's a sort of epistolary nature to some of the book. Yeah. You get sort of emails mm-hmm. and, and posts 
from various cultures. And there is a Wikipedia in in the book, actually. <laughs> One of the people that they meet is an amateur archivist, and basically like space Wikipedia. And he agrees to do research on the Tremie for a rosemary. And in the book, it says, like, does not you know, send error or something like that. Oh, right. Okay. And it says the Tremie have really good hearing, so be really careful. Like, don't say anything in mm. the room. When they're in the room, don't say anything about them. They will hear it. And then there's this cocktail party. God, in, in space, there's still awkward cocktail parties, Dan. I, I bet <laughs> they have was, academic, that was I very bet they have academic panels, too. I was going to say, that was a very true-to-life international relations moment. I've been at awkward, like, international organization cocktail parties. So, yeah, yeah, totally believable. And also, this is very re- relatable, that, like, the crew of the Wayfair goes off in the corner to, like, bitch for... Yeah. A minute and they say some things about the Turimi that aren't that bad but they're kind of like i'm suspicious of these people or something they're not diplomatic let's put it they're that they're not way. diplomatic that's yeah. right it's not terrible but it, they cast some shade mm-hmm. on the alliance and the Turimi, of course overhear this with their super hearing and i don't know again sort of yada yada a little bit so the Turimi decide to fire on the wayfair this whole section could have been clearer for me yeah that's because I think as it's portrayed in the book, mm-hmm. severing the alliance makes sense. Yes, uh, but I, again, it was it was sort of. But a, it's unclear, like kind of what really happens. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now I just want to prove <laughs> that I did actually write this. This is about the so I think it's the humanities scholar in me that all the stuff that I noticed about IR was a lot of like descriptions of cultures and my curiosity about like how does this play out in politics, right? right? like the human suddenly becoming humble. And I'm just going to show Dan in the Zoom that I have written. <laughs> IR, question mark, ah, examples, question mark. Yep, yep, yep. Has any has this ever happened in history? Question mark, Dan, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I got really excited about it. I was like, what the fuck? Like, humanity became humble. And I, so I guess my real, has this, is there an example of a culture suffering a defeat so total that it changed the way they think about themselves i guess the best example actually would be germany post world war ii and really this is sort of a unique one where that's actually the germans apologized to just about everyone for what happened during world war ii probably didn't help that world war one preceded it although even in germany now like you know part of this is sort of just generational fade that you eventually have people who grew up without any memory of what Germany did before. And furthermore, to be fair, and this is why, again, I'm dubious of this this concept, because they were born much later, they don't necessarily feel any obligation about this because they didn't do the horrible things. And so why should they pay the price for their ancestors' actions? There is an uh, allusions to a sort of speciest human contingent mm-hmm. that's like human supremacists perhaps yeah would look at it which might be something like that i guess the only thing i'd say kind of in defense of this idea that that the you know such a total defeat that they continue to be humble hundreds of years later is that they've been shown they're not the boss you know? right the, the, i like, guess the, other the initial one, humility yeah. would be we fucked up our planet so bad we have to leave mm-hmm. so yeah we're, we're gonna have to kind of change our ways a little bit and then Oh my God, we were saved, not out of our own greatness. But just luck. But, but just luck. And also, we're fairly insignificant. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not that I'm saying it's impossible. It's that I'm I just, just saying yeah. it's, it's, 
unlikely. I think the expanse sort of version of how humans might react <laughs> to bad, you know, global bad news is probably a little more accurate. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, so the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is the Harmagenians, which is I just Harmagenians. Yeah, yeah. Could be Harmagens. Harmagians. Harmagians. Anyway, yes. so in the backstory, they are the former really cruel colonizers. Mm-hmm. of the galaxy like they have you know maybe sort of like white people i'm right. guessing <laughs> and there's a little an aluian aluan i don't see i'm so bad Aluan. that's what i would say aluan aluan yeah aluan historian theorizes that the physical frailty of the harmigians harm whatever because they're basically slugs right mm-hmm. I think so, yes. Yeah, is why they were so technologically advanced and also what made them so mean mm-hmm. and rapacious. And this historian says, a quote from the historian, want and intelligence is a dangerous combination. I which, underline that too, if it makes you feel like <laughs> yes. I are in a nutshell, my yeah. friend, would you say? <laughs> I yes, mean, yes, except like I don't know why it would be unique to the Harmangians. I mean, it's part, how do I put this? The one thing that gives me pause sometimes whenever we like they try to like transplant international relations to the galaxy is they wind up doing what I would call national character kind of things where, you know, we talk about like the Israelis are aggressive or yep. the French are the kind Italians racist, are bad fight. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. It, and That's, so yeah, no, definitely. You don't do that on Earth, but in the sci fi stuff, that is how a lot of the IR is often portrayed. Now to be fair, it's in some ways species linked it's not just culture but like i think one of the things that i I, one of the things i actually really legitimately liked about this book was that a lot of the cultures we wind up getting exposed to have dissident communities or minorities communities there is a heterogeneity not just within the humans but within a lot of the cultures that we get exposed to in this book and that i find much more realistic i agree i think it's um one of the charming things about the book is that you kind of get a pretty even-handed look at what you know historians and culture says about uh, Mm -hmm. species which is true like you can make some broad generalizations about different countries about different you know ways of growing up whatever but then also everyone's themselves yeah everyone gets to control their own destiny and everyone has a different personality and gets to say who they are right so there's she just doesn't do it a few times. <laughs> she does. No, I mean, like, you know, she, she has this with the humans. She also does it with the grums, I would also add. Yeah, like, where yeah. That, which is the, the species of Dr. Chef, where, like, they apparently decided they've been fighting a civil war for so long that they decide in the end, okay, you know what? We've ruined everything. We will just die out. It was a bizarre... Yeah, that also seems suspicious to me. Yeah, that... And I, I guess I was going to ask you about precedent for that, but maybe we just don't know it. Maybe that's happened before, but... No, it hasn't. <laughs> I'm just going to go there. That does never happen before, which maybe makes it cool that it's an alien story. But like, no, you're not going to find a parallel on Earth there. So, Anna, I have a question for you. Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this book? Dan, I didn't have to work too hard. (laughs) I believe that Becky herself is not much of a fan. That's what I would say. I don't know if you picked that up. Uh, that did come across, yes, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just going to read a couple of the quotes I thought were funny. Mm-hmm. 
she's talking about sort of a, a species interrelations, and she notes the potential for profit always seemed to trump antipathy, which is also just a true thing. Yes, yeah, so although and I then, would say that's actually a good thing about capitalism, but keep Yes, going. you would say that. Yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing is, the potential for profit trumps everything, Dan. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah. That's uh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. And then a little more on point here. Mm-hmm. Most of the terasite—it's a mineral that's needed in spaceships. Most of the terasite ore in the GC is mined by Quillian prisoners, which I thought was a, a cute little Apple reference. Yeah. Well, it's not just <laughs> Apple. It could be Nike. It could be like you know, you name your your corporate scandal. So yeah, that I I did actually like that one. That was a good move. And again, like if I had sort of thought about it more, I think I might have dug into the labor messages in the right. book, which is, I mean, obviously she's pro-labor. Like this yeah. is this is a book about a working class crew. Yes. And also I will point out that arms trade is the highest form of capitalism. <laughs> Capitalism's most perfect expression, let's say. Perfect in the sense of platonic ideal, not in the sense of, yes. But you understood me, you were nodding. I'm just saying that for people that might not have been following me. Yes. By or the don't way, know me. It doesn't get, it, you don't see it in the podcast, <laughs> I nodded on a lot. That is true. And I'm going to remember that. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Dan, we also need to discuss the themes in this book. Yes. Would you like to talk about some themes that you saw or a theme? I think the, the one theme I would, that struck me is that trying to take social constructivism as an idea and, and sort of extend it to interstellar relations. Again, one of the key elements of constructivism is norms. And a lot of this book is about different cultural norms and different members of the crew trying to cope with those cultural norms and trying to figure out which norms they think are a good idea, which norms they have to respect, which norms they agree they'll disagree, and which norms are like just really powerful. And galactic norms are tricky. You know, because, and, and it does seem like, to the extent that we understand how the Taremi think, there was an almost populist tilt at the idea of the Taremi, the idea that there was some mm-hmm. sort of general will that they could distill that would be consensus, and they did not understand how the GC could function with all these different cultures and species and disagreements. And I'm a liberal small L, and I love that GC world. But one of the things that I think the book actually does a nice job of is sort of de- is demonstrating Tolerance for other people's norms and cultures does take some work. There's some mind changing that occasionally has to go on. There's some tolerance for things that you might find problematic. And so it's not always the easiest thing to do. There are benefits to it, but there are also costs. And I did appreciate the fact that the book sort of implicitly made that point. Anna, what about you? I mean, we've talked about the families of choice theme. Mm-hmm. Sort of a related to me is that I think that Chambers is really interested in the different ways we can think about emotions Mm -hmm. and the different ways we can express them. Mm -hmm. And the two kind of big pieces on that is one, that sex can be a lot of different things, Mm. not just like boning, you know? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because there is this sweet love story between Lovelace and Jinx. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a believable love story that these two consciousnesses love each other right. and that they have ways of being intimate with each other that it, it's something that you might giggle about but no this sweet- feels real like the most romantic scene in this entire book is the scene of jenks literally sleeping with the ai core like yeah. it was at, that i was actually legitimately touched by that yeah. even though there was a part of me that wanted to giggle <laughs> and then and also sex can express a lot of different things not mm-hmm. just like not just monogamy and not just desire. Like it can be a few different things. And then more specifically on emotions, I actually just want to read a couple things. Mm -hmm. These are the parts that made me cry. So 
uh, let me get to a place where I can read. Here we go. So this is Dr. Chef. The thoughts he was drumming up were old and safely kept. Kizzy had accused him once of bottling up his feelings, but this was a human concept. The idea that one could hide their feelings away and pretend that they weren't there. Dr. Chef knew exactly where all his feelings were, every joy, every ache. He didn't need to visit them all at once to know where they were. He did not run from his grief, nor did he deny his existence. He could study his grief from a distance, like a scientist observing animals. He embraced it. He accepted it, acknowledged that it would never go away. It was as much a part of him as any pleasant feeling, perhaps even more so. Hmm. I think that's, that's, cool. yeah. that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this is a much shorter quote, but I really liked it. It's a scene where Kizzy is disarming some mines, which I don't think we even mentioned. That no, that's a we big didn't. scene. That, that, that's one of the episodic adventures. <laughs> but there's yeah. this, this thing happens where Kizzy has to go and d- disarm some mines. Mm-hmm. This is a, something she's nervous about, yes. as you might guess. Uh, Pei is with her, mm-hmm. the captain's love interest. And she seems really calm. And Kizzy's like, how can you be so calm? Mm-hmm. And Pei responds, I never thought of fear as something that can just go away. Mm-hmm. It just is. It reminds me that I want to stay alive. And that doesn't strike me as a bad thing. By the way, I do think soldiers have talked about that in terms of trying to stay alive when you were fighting. And so that's... I don't think it's a new idea. Yeah, I just yeah. think... And in fact, it's something that my therapist said to me yesterday. Oh, there you go. <laughs> when we were talking about fears, like she just, she was like, yes, you know, some fears are reasonable. Some fears are about wanting to stay alive. But a lot of fears that humans have are just fears. Yeah. And I think actually taking the grum point of view of those fears is I, the ideal way yes. to do it, which is to look at them, examine them, know where they are, mm-hmm. know that they have meaning. Yeah. And also, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up Kizzy because she really was my favorite character in the in the in the book. She, there, there is an infectious enthusiasm about the way that she lives life that I would like to share. I too liked Kizzy. I did think of her as kind of related to Kaylee in Firefly, no. who's also kind of a daffy mechanic. But so I would say two things on this. The first is part of it is that Kaylee daffy in a loving way. I don't mean that. I, I daffy guess. In a, Part, Kaylee's, eccentric. Kaylee's story in Firefly is so tied to the crush that she has on the Doctor that I actually, I, I live this way, I like Kizzy better as a character. Yeah. Because yeah. she's a more well-rounded uh, person. Oh, I, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I actually think she's a better character, but right. she kind of reminded me. She, I was like, when I first was introduced yeah. to her, I was like, oh, this is the wacky female mechanic who guess, likes yeah, to yeah, dress yeah. kind of punk rock and yeah. has like kind of some quirks. Right. She then develops into a more full character yes but yes. anyway i was reminded manic pixie dream engineer yes exactly <laughs> that's where you're going with yeah but she's more than right. that so i agree yeah all right dan what do you hear I, i'm hearing debris ching, ching. Anna. i'm hearing you debris. know it must be it, it's probably the remains of the wayfarers like core <laughs> that got blown off yes it's the debris field dan do you have anything you want to talk about that we haven't already talked about uh, a few things. First of all, I, I loved Dr. Chef's description of tea as a moody drink because tea is, in <laughs> fact, an incredibly moody drink. And what I love about tea is that, like, you know, the spectrum of moods you can have depending upon the kind of tea you, you choose and how it can be prepared. So I never thought about that before, and that was a legitimate insight in the book. 
I also liked the the Friends of Digital Sapiens, which were an NGO that was dedicated to having treating AIs as sentient beings, which the book actually does sort of cause the reader to tend to do. But in the case of the Friends of Digital Sapiens, it demonstrates that dumb NGOs exist in the future because the way they do it is so ham-handed that it winds up being counterproductive to their cause. There is a lovely little scene uh, in a port where Sissix winds up, I would say, sort of coupling with or not, not comforting comforting and autistic and this is also where i mean like that they don't couple but this no. is also what i'm kind of saying about like sex is a lot of things besides sex and right. like you can express a lot of different things but I, it's intimate touching yes it was snuggling that's the word you know yeah, it was snuggling, snuggling and auti- what seemed like an autistic member of the andrisk species who was clearly all alone and, and in, it struck me that for this species being alone is in some ways the worst thing possible that, that to, to have no one to emotionally rely on and it, it was just a very affectionate tender scene that I thought was extremely well done and then finally I just thought it was awesome that hey, the small angry planet in the novel wasn't Earth. That was what I was expecting when you first told me we were reading this. So it was like, oh, okay, they're heading to Earth. Oh, it's not Earth. Sweet. You know, yeah. Anna, what about you? Well, I am always fascinated by what the future holds as far as drugs and other intoxicants goes. Mm -hmm. So I I definitely paid attention to that. I also paid attention to the sober up pills that (laughs) they had available, which I will just point out, unfortunately, is not a pill to get rid of addiction. Mm. (laughs) It's just to get rid of a hangover, sounds like. And then I want to thank Charlie Jane Anderson for this particular thought, Mm -hmm. which is how do you know the gender of the aliens that you meet? Hmm. This is not something that she spends any time on. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to me like the Hargaminians, Hargamini, mm-hmm. Harmigans. I'm just going to call them the Harmigans. Yeah. That they're sort of, they're slug-like, right? I How would so, you yeah. know? No, How would you know? It's a valid question. Like, what are the gender markers? Yeah. And why would you assume anything? And wouldn't maybe alien cultures have different gender markers that don't translate to us? So thank you, Charlie Jane. Mm-hmm. I also want to say that that lacuna, the, the fact that that's not paid attention to in the novel is one of the ways you can tell that this novel was written like in the early 2010s. Oh, fair enough, yes. Yes. <laughs> that point. that has not really That's that not really didn't thing. break yeah. into our culture till a few years ago. Yeah. Should have been earlier, I'll mm-hmm. say that. I also really liked the platonic relationship between Sizzix and Ashby. There is a, a lovely scene where Ashby calls Sizzix on her relationship with Rosemary. Right. You know, his crew members are coupled up. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how Sissix is such a her you know her species is so touchy like, mm-hmm. they rely on touch as a way of communicating that it is hard for her to live in a human crew right that she has to give up a little of herself mm-hmm. in order to live with this crew and one of the reasons that Rosemary kind of decides that she wants to be with her is that she recognizes mm-hmm. that this is something that Sissix is starved for yeah and they talk a little bit about that and Ashby says I'm sorry that I couldn't be the one to do that for you it was a very adult conversation, is the way yes. you put it. And I mean that in all the best senses of the word. There was one other small one. I and she says that's fine. She's like, she's like, no, you're something different. You're, right. she, she points out feather families have different roles. Yes, which I thought like you're still in my feather family, just yeah. not that kind of person in my feather family. It was very sweet. I forgot there was one other small thing I wanted to mention, which I did like, which is, you know, we Rosemary as she becomes the the clerk for the ship it's her first time really being in the, in space and she's quite adept at coping with all these things i did like how at the beginning she winds up having to recall her college courses to actually help her out on this. <laughs> i'm like hey you know what college teaches you some actually some useful fucking skills so like as a professor i really did appreciate that yes yes 
Anna, you know, I'm feeling like a mustache coming on. I don't know. It's, like, <laughs> it's I, growing. It's growing. The mustache growing is growing. It's growing on me. I, I see it. Yeah. I see it. I think I feel one too. Um, it's time to talk about Ted Lasso. It is, yes. Yes. So I'm going to do what I tried to make a brief synopsis, mm-hmm. but, but you know, it's not so I, brief, I now have ahead. a lot of sympathy for your synopses, Thank Dan. You. I really do. Okay. So here there be spoilers mm-hmm. for anyone who hasn't seen episode two of season two. Here we go. Lust conquers all, conquers Jamie, who it turns out left Man City for daddy reasons. He approaches Keeley about getting the band back together, a conversation we do not see the end of. Instead, we find Roy finding Keeley getting a wank on. But, ha, twist! It is not fond memories of Jamie that she is wanking to. But, twist, it is not fond memories of Jamie she is wanking to. But, in fact, a video of Roy sobbing at his retirement announcement. And I want to add here, crying is a a kink that I've heard of before. Like, people get turned on by crying. This particular version is not one that I have heard of before, which I don't know. Like, who knew new kinks were possible? Good on you, Keely. Yep. So... Ted agrees to talk to Jamie, but it is pretty much never a good idea to date your ex, or is it? Once Ted sees the team go apeshit over the rumor of Jamie's return, he decides to do it because, you know, daddy reasons. Meanwhile, Roy's under 10 team loses their championship because they played like a bunch of pricks, except for the girl who really put her body on the line. In his grief and knowing what turns Keeley on, he agrees to do some football punditry and promptly breaks the internet with his profanity. (laughs) Sharon is literally in the background for most of the episode, but getting closer. She winds up letting Ted call her Doc, and she will be with the team for the rest of the season. So, Anna, what did you like about this episode? I love Roy so much. (laughs) (laughs) I really, really do. Mm -hmm. I don't know why he wasn't my favorite in the first season, but I love him now. Mm -hmm. And um, the yoga mom thing continues to amuse me. And his frustration that the yoga moms are crushing on Jamie is very, very funny. Yes. I also like that vapid morning shows exist across the pond as well. There is a exit interview for Jamie, much like you'd have on any for any other reality, reality show, show that yeah, has yeah. that has a morning show sister brother on the network. Mm-hmm. And then also Jamie's agent firing him, where he says, You know you're like a son to me. Now you're a dead son, which means I love you even more. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that scene. That was very yeah. good. Yeah. I now want to say a couple of things I didn't like. Mm-hmm. All shows should be banned from using anarchy in the UK as a needle drop. It's too much of a cliche. It's never going to work. Like the only time it'll ever work is if it's an ironic needle drop. If what you're doing is setting up that Roy is in fact going to introduce anarchy into the UK, <laughs> <laughs> then I think you need to not use that song. Mm-hmm. That's all, that's all I'll say about that. Also, and this is a very controversial and perhaps spicy take, I said it on the Discord using a hot fire emoji. Mm -hmm. I think it's problematic that the shorthand for a man being selfless in sex is oral sex, which is the thing that happens. Roy thanking, quote unquote, thanking Mm Keeley. It makes it seem like it's something only the receiver enjoys, which is not necessarily the case. And it implies that it is a special treat of some kind and you wouldn't do it otherwise. I personally, and Dan, you can comment now if you would like. Spicy, I'm I know. I'm just seeing so many landmines in front of me trying to, to deal with this. But I, I do agree with your point that oral sex is... We don't have to get specific about anything. You can just agree with my point. 
<laughs> I agree. I, I agree with your point about oral sex, regardless of gender, not yeah. necessarily being a selfless act. That very often the giver of it is yes, yes, is it can be enjoyable yeah. on every side involved. Exactly. And so I, somewhat jokingly, I would have liked him doing the dishes, perhaps. <laughs> if that, if you're going to be selfless, chores are a much better way to express selflessness. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, and this is what I actually thought was going to happen when it became clear there was going to be some sexy time, <laughs> I thought he was going to make himself cry. Yeah, that was the which one. I think would have been funnier and better. That was a slightly discord <laughs> note. It was like, don't have him watch the video while you're doing that. Like, actually, like, you know, yeah, ge- right? generate the emotions. No, that that's a fair point. Yes. Like, that would have been not selfless, but actually a wonderful moment for him to allow himself to show emotion around Keely and then, get, you know, and then have sex. That would be great. Yeah. Anyway, spicy take. Probably the spiciest one I will have all year. Fair enough. I'm guessing. We'll see. Dan, what did you like? So a couple of things. First of all, to consider with your plot, I like the pleasant surprise that Keely was wanking to Roy and not Jamie because it was clearly set up that you were expecting that. And I was like, oh, good. This is going to be a more interesting plot line than, than just that boring one. I like the doc melting a little bit with Ted. It would be safe to say that Sharon has been somewhat standoffish toward Ted, somewhat removed, somewhat, dare I say, academic in terms of the whole thing. But towards the end of this episode, it's clear that she she's actually giving Ted useful feedback and is beginning to, I think, understand Ted as well and like recognizing that they actually share the same goal. I like the acknowledgement in this conversation where Sharon says... I have never seen a more supportive work environment, but that said, you've got eight straight ties. Is that enough? And I, how do I put this? I am glad that in professional sports, we have, you know, it's acknowledged on the show, they want to win. Winning is kind of important. If they don't win, that's not necessarily a successful season. And so that was one of the things that the first season of Ted Lasso sort of danced around a little bit. And there was a brief moment in season one, I don't know if you remember, where Roy is starting to fade and Ted is like, ah, I think I'm going to stick with him. And finally, Coach Beard just goes off on Ted. Oh, I remember that. We talked about that. You and I talked about that as being a favorite moment. Because, yeah, Ted has to be imperfect for the show to work. Right. But Coach Beard was right to say, if this was college, I would understand what you're doing. This is professionals. We need to win. And so I like the idea in some ways of, like, the way you create a pearl with an oyster is occasionally adding an irritant. And maybe they need to add some talent just more talent in order to <laughs> See, well the thing is it's not just adding an irritant it is adding talent yes. that's the thing that's the like. thing exactly yes <laughs> finally there was just a quick line that jamie said when they were in the bar which i just cracked up by which is old people they're like yoda but taller which i just thought was very good <laughs> i also lol yes yes and so anna what did we learn from this episode i'm just gonna say good dads are good <laughs> i i mean i am a good dad and it is it's a little bit hacky almost i'm gonna say i'm kind of worried almost about the level to which dadness is showing up in ted lasso right now Mm -hmm. because like ted lasso is actually based on jason sudeikis's dad a little bit apparently oh really so there's just dadness everywhere but i agree that good dads are good yes good dads are good what I learned was is that speaking the truth, even if it's R-rated, makes you a legitimately interesting sports commentator. And also, if I'm ever going to be a sports commentator, I'm going to wear Roy's suit because he killed that fucking suit. Dan, we are done with the show. <laughs> I think. Yes. I think we're done. Yeah. Pretty done. We are. We have stuff coming up. Uh, we have a belated AMA, I believe. That is correct. I think listeners to the podcast will know that the AMA will be happening Less than 24 hours after this drops, probably. Uh, yes, be that is correct. Saturday the 14th. 
And then just to quickly run through what we have coming up, Reign of Fire, Fantasy Island. We may have a surprise episode that the people in the Discord kind of spoiled for themselves by requesting it. (laughs) But I won't say what it is here, just in case you don't know. But we may have a surprise, I guess no longer a surprise except the subject coming up. And we are going to continue to recap Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. And that... Uh, I mentioned because the Discord is going to start a watch party every Friday night to watch Ted Lasso together. Yes. Dan, do you have anything else to add? Keep this channel open for more.